0: episode 155, The Connection Between Empathy and Successful Business Models. Today, I speak with Scott Barclay, who is a partner over at Data Collective.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: I talk with Scott Barclay today. Scott is a partner at Data Collective. We discuss what it takes for an entrepreneur to succeed in the healthcare ecosystem today, including an essential ingredient, empathy. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Scott.
1: Thank you, Stacey. I'm a Long time fan of the, of the pod. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So you are a partner over at Data Collective. Talk about Data Collective. What, what is it?
1: Data Collective is a pretty special early stage investment fund. We're predominantly seed and series A and we invest in hard tech and deep compute. And it turns out we do quite a bit in healthcare.
0: Before Data Collective, you were the director of strategy over at ShoreScripts. What does the director of strategy at ShoreScripts do?
1: My journey there really started as an operating owner and an advisory board member from the CVS Caremark perspective. And along that journey, I ran an e prescribing company that we owned at CVS Caremark. I worked on a number of big initiatives. At a certain point, I left CVS Caremark to help scale ShoreScripts as the chief strategy officer. And what that really meant was owning the immediate Operational questions, the Six Sigma teams and the product teams that had to deliver how the network would stand up would move prescriptions with fidelity. And we were constantly working on kind of transactional innovation to make the transactions stronger and better implemented. But what it really meant was deeply and empathetically understanding why the PBM would want e-prescribing to occur, why the pharmacy would want it to occur. But most importantly, why e-prescribing was a really hard challenge inside the clinical environment and on the, on the provider side of this essentially three-sided network. Being a chief strategy officer also involved asking questions of, okay, if we've just built a national highway, then the e-prescription is like this little special Ducati motorcycle. It's really awesome, and we're really happy that it exists, but shouldn't this highway exist for some greater good? And so, being the chief strategy officer was one part very operational execution-oriented, probably more than most strategy officers, and it was one part trying to define the future boundaries of the firm, and and frankly, pushing forward an agenda of why don't we move health data in this country in a HIPAA appropriate freemium way so that all data gets to the right place at the right time? Because what I really wanted to do was work on the new tools and platforms and compute you would build if you could always have the right data at the right context. SureScript succeeded as being this amazing network of moving the prescription, but to work on that bigger vision, I'd have to move on and, and work on the problem from other directions.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think we forget about the time e-prescribing is so ubiquitous today that we forget that there was a time where nobody quite knew how to pull that off.
1: It was a really great early exposure to when the strategy meets implementation. So I'll tell you just a couple of, of simplistic heuristics, which is one of the reasons we love deprescribing is it's exactly the same use case, standard, transaction. Everything about it should be the same anywhere in the country. And it's the same whether it's going to go 500 feet from the pediatric clinic to the Walgreens across the street. And it's the same if it's going to your mail order pharmacy or if you're going to be traveling. On the other hand, adoption and changes of human behavior are not ubiquitous or smooth in all different places. And what ultimately we've found, I'll, I'll just tell you two heuristics. One is that while there was still skepticism that this was the right way to do it, and there were lots of fear, doubt, and misunderstanding that this was somehow a violation of standards of care, and yes, I did have clinicians tell me that multiple times, what we ultimately did was, and credit you know, to a number of, of early people at SureScripts when it was a very small shop out of Washington, D.C., is we set up camp in Providence, Rhode Island, and in eastern Massachusetts, And I really thought of it as corner-to-corner battle, and it was to try to get every stakeholder involved to understand that this was better and that there was already a network on the other side ready to receive the prescription. And then we would run back to pharmacy and say, you guys are ready, right? You know, with two big thumbs up. (laughs) And of course, their CEOs were ready. They were intellectually ready. They wanted to receive the prescription electronically. They knew from the very beginning there's both safety components and operational savings. But in reality, you know, it would show up in some laptop computer over in the back of a pharmacy and the patient would show up saying, well, my doctor emailed my prescription and you know, all hell would ensue for five minutes of confusion and misterminology. So it turns out that a, pharma, a retail pharmacy would need to get to about 5% of their prescriptions coming in electronically such that at that point it became an integral part of just how you do business. And everyone, you didn't really need to do training. It's that you became acclimated to it. You knew where to look for it. You knew what was an acute script versus chronic. And uh, the systems, of course, behind them got better at integrating that into the flow of all prescriptions. And of course, this would differ and there would be variation across pharmacy chains for some period of time. I imagine all that's pretty solid now. But at the time, we were just fighting to get doctors to believe it really would work to get their staffs to not try to just get their doctor to write on a little post-it note, put it in their pocket and save it and do all of them all that night because I tell you that leads to many missed expectations. But at the same time, we had to run it back over to the pharmacy and say, you guys really have to be ready because one dropped experience very early and we've lost that clinician's office for probably many months.
0: And I think what you just described is probably a pretty good summation of what goes on in innovation in healthcare all the time. A situation where intellectually, just like you said, everyone's pretty unanimous even perhaps on what needs to happen or the strategy of what needs to happen or let's just say in circumstances where they are. But then that strategy gets way over the skis of what is operationally possible. And then I think another point that you just made is also making sure that doctors are convinced that this will actually work. I'm sure that with your work with Data Collective, as you said, which is kind of the next rung in your pursuit, that same circumstance comes up time and time again.
1: Yeah, I think there's a couple of good threads here. So to my own trajectory, I left ShareScripts in 2012 and really entered into a period you might call kind of square peg round hole in the sense that I looked like I wore several hats, but to me, I was exactly the same, just as I am today, which is predominantly hypothesis-driven inquiry of identifying a problem, asking why we can't handle that problem differently, and then looking for what's what's the best way to try to test how we might solve that problem differently. For much of the last five years, I played a role as an angel investor. What I cared about was, what am I working with the right entrepreneurial teams on the right really big problems that I care about? To the theme of your question, if someone were playing buzzword bingo on me, you know, the quotation that there is no innovation without execution is something that people would roll their eyes saying back to me because I say it so often. And within that execution, what's really deeply embedded in that is an empathy. So, an empathy for the person whose world that you may be changing or of which you're asking something, but also empathy to the problem not yet solved. So, there's so many environments where we're talking about the consumer or the patient or the clinician. But there's also like really good men and women who are heroes behind the scenes who are part of a system. And they can tell you better than anyone that the system is grinding them up. So we sit here at a pretty special early stage investor wanting to take exponential shots on the future of human health. And yet with the majority of, of the companies that touch this space, we spend a lot of time just walking alongside them, trying to help understand, trying to help anticipate what some of those tough challenges will be. In some ways, having the really good idea and the, even the exciting reason why it might really scale, that comes pretty early. The unlocking the next set of problems, finding that deeper behavioral understanding so that you show a really deep way that it works, that's that's harder. And sometimes it takes a number of iterations before. And sometimes the definition of product market fit is that the market is pulling your product. Well, usually they're not pulling it unless you have found some empathetic sweet spot so that it's really solving a problem in a context that makes sense to them.
0: In the context of the exponential shots that you just mentioned, as an early stage investor, one of the things that you have said, which intrigued me, is that this is not a place for incrementalism.
1: It's one part a loving criticism of what we've tried to do as an ecosystem the last five to eight years. It's one part a damning criticism of some of the institutions who control a significant portion of healthcare GDP. And it's one part kind of a clarion call to what we need next. There are so many good entrepreneurs, and maybe they were from healthcare, maybe they were from outside of healthcare, and they came into this with the right spirit, and they came into building an early healthcare company, a digital health company. Um, not only with the right intent, but with an understanding that there has to be both a mission and that you have to have qualities and components of execution. But when I stand back from it and look at the larger suite of data and then compare that to in a very broad landscape of, of anecdotes and uh, anecdotes and experiences that I have, there's just so many who came in with language and continued to hold on to language of transformation very, very long, where I would say one or two things became true. One was that what they were working on was always going to be an incremental Additional piece to a really big system. You're not going to transform healthcare by just slightly tweaking a patient interaction into a more digital format. So why don't we look at it realistically for the operational step forward that it is and leave some of the hype and hyperbole aside? But part of the problem of this is if you look over 800, 900 of these companies, one of the next things I would say is that some of the really big ones that did go for big shots, they're the ones who most gloriously flamed out. And very often that was maybe the wrong expectations. Uh, but in some cases, it was they were not going up against a complexity of healthcare. They were going up against an increasing complexity of healthcare that's predominantly oligopolistically controlled. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to sell into a really big enterprise that has a long sales cycle. Uh, that's actually true in a number of industries. And I, I don't think that's the only excuse you can give for why healthcare takes longer. But it's another thing to say I'm going in and I'm trying to sell something disruptive into an oligopoly. I just don't think that entrepreneur should be surprised two years later when the four pilots they were really excited about all have been swatted down. And now they're running out of cash and it's a little too late to come up with that proverbial pivot. But then the third thing I would point out, also looking across these eight, nine hundred, one thousand companies, and there are a few, but there's very, very few where you would say, Wow, they came in with a view of what could be transformative to human health and the way that we do healthcare today. And they really brought that ambition to bear. We don't have an Elon Musk of how we provide healthcare. There's a just a massive gap between the ambition of people wanting to do deep, valid. Strong things with data that impact patients, impact how we make medical decisions. There are many, many strong informaticists and entrepreneurs and engineers and business development early leaders who have a view of working on that problem. But there's very, very few who have realized, ah, in this part of the market for the problem I want to solve, I'm going to have to go bigger and then put together a realistic action plan. If you look at what Musk wanted to do around cars and the battery, I'm not saying it was a perfectly straight line, but there was an undoubtedly clear ambition and a relatively decently thought through playbook. And in each of those steps, there was massive derision and massive confusion and, oh, those are just $100,000 cars for the rich. But it was all part of a plan of taking the battery down a cost curve such that you would radically alter how we might think of transportation. We are not seeing such entrepreneurial ambition coming into healthcare yet, or very few of them. And so part of our clarion call is saying the future will be built with data and compute and empathy. And we want to combine that with tomorrow's Elon Musk and actually change the big trajectories of cost and quality and, and care.
0: I'm hearing one critical component of what you're saying. If you identify a problem that's big enough for somebody, if you say, hey, I can solve this problem for you, and people are like, sign me out, where's the contract? A lot of this hinges on having a problem that's big enough for one stakeholder, that one stakeholder sees such an immense value in the solution, that they're willing to be a champion for it despite the disruption and the obvious downsides to being disruptive. In the model that you're thinking of, or kind of in the healthcare ecosystem is probably more to the point. Are you suggesting that, like, h- how does empathy help you identify that particular problem, which is big enough to buck an oligopoly?
1: I'm saying something simple, actually. If you're building a life sciences company that's doing really special in compute, that's going to arrive at essentially a new, let's say, therapeutic candidate, you obviously might want to have your scientists have real empathy for the types of patients it might help. But in general, there is a playbook there. There's an industry there. I may not be close enough to say where we do and don't need empathy, but in some ways you could be a, you could be just a cold hard killer scientist and get that right. But if you are over on the provision of care, if you are thinking about people and how we enable aging in place, if you're looking at it and saying, gosh, pediatrics haven't actually changed very much in a few decades. And actually, here's all the problems. And as you get in these areas of the socioeconomics, We're actually not doing a good enough job. In fact, we're decreasing in quality in certain areas, and we're falling further behind some of our industrialized uh, brethren across the world. It's very hard to want to build a company that solves a hard problem in the provision of care without inculcating in your team from the beginning a DNA of how you have empathy to that use case. That's really what I'm saying. And I want to say something broader, which is I can think of three business models that we know work in this world and where it's headed. One is, let's just imagine for a moment that the healthcare system is kind of big and gnarly and really dysfunctional. <laughs> many heroes inside, many good things, but it's a mess. Your Hypothetically, uh, are you saying? Or <laughs> n- no, no. De facto, I-, I will bet more push-ups than my body could pay off. <laughs> Listen, your monologue around Amazon and healthcare was really emissive around all the things that we have maybe still accepted longer than we should have and the things that inevitably have to change. But you know, where do you get started? I'm not putting words in your mouth and saying that was a wonderful call. So I know of three business models that work. And what I, I just I want to mention them really briefly, because I'm gonna tell you where I think empathy sits in each one. So one business model is, you are working on a use case that no two ways about it, you're going to have to sell it both as a business, but as a concept into the belly of the beast of that big healthcare, dysfunctional GDP monster. So, for example, we recently invested in a really special team that does both good math and really good machine learning on top of the ICU. Now, there's lots of reasons I'm excited about this, but there's no getting around it. You have to sell to the committees and the institutions that run ICUs. Like, There's no transforming this over on the side in a garage in Silicon Valley. The empathy there is obvious. You have to be empathetic not only to the patients in the ICU, but you have to really start to understand the clinical super supervision level, the clinicians, the nurse and the staff. All they, they make a tremendous difference into what will and what work. But fundamentally, you have to get into the theory and the practice of both research and application of deep clinical informatics in that environment. Okay, great. The point I'm making on that business model, the business model there is you have to be at least 10, I would like to see 50 times better than what came before. Like there's a reason that there has not been a scaling machine learning ICU play. And it's because one, it's really hard. Two, it would have to be so much better than what exists there. And even then, uh, it's going to take time to really distribute that. What I have seen in a couple of institutions, it's like the future is here. It's not yet distributed. It's going to take a little bit of time to distribute it. The ICU is not a place where you do flipping things. So that's one. We call it a laser shot into the system, but it's got to be 50 times better. A second business model that makes sense is you can solve a really hard problem, and you know you're going to solve it, like you know the answer. But you look at how the world works, and you say, screw it. I, I'm not going to go try to convince 10,000 dermatologists that this AI software is better. I'll just build a new dermatology practice. Or let me take a wonderful example that's not a data collective investment. Um, I think Verda had deep belief and research that you could leverage a ketogenic diet surrounded by all these appropriate clinical controls, essentially build a practice around the type 2 diabetic to reverse type 2 diabetes. Now, if you wanted to go and try to sell that theory to every endocrinologist and primary care physician touching a diabetic or pre-type 2 diabetic patient, you know, it's like, good luck with that. I'll check back in in 20 years. But to their credit, what they looked at is they looked at the belly of the beast of this healthcare system and they said, where is there one place where we could just get access to this patient and earn the right to basically become their virtual and physical wraparound clinic? And, you know, I think they started to have some real progress doing that just by getting access to the chief health resource officer at a large self-insured employer. Anyway, the third model that I would mention, and there's relatively few of these are network effects. And my friend James Courier told me the other day that They've calculated that 65% of the market value created by private startups in this recent generation, the economic value owes back to network effects. And yet in healthcare, who I think I can only name four true networks that have been built in the past 15 years. And I think I had a a hand or or a thumb in three of them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which are short scripts.
1: Well, share scripts for first and foremost, yeah. but I think Cover My Meds is a beautiful story of empathy, execution, and actually building a three-sided network that a fourth party actually pays for. I'm an early, have a, have a little bit of early equity and doximity, uh, which I think it'd be simple to say is a LinkedIn for doctors, but does something, of a number of profound things beneath the surface. And the fourth, and I don't know this company at all, but boy, are they worth admiring, is Viva over on the, you know, the life sciences marketing side of the world. So there's relatively few platforms of network effects in healthcare, very much unlike the other areas where networks and compute are starting to really change both industry and how we live our lives. And all I'm saying is that's a proven model. I'm not saying that that should be applied to every healthcare problem, but there are some problems that should be applied to, and it begs questions as to why they haven't taken off. When we get into areas of data sharing and referral management, and why doesn't the right data follow the patient? And why don't we, in context, optimize what should happen with that patient next? In some cases, one of my answers is there are oligopolies, and those oligopolies actually don't want the network effects that would optimize what's best for that patient, because instead, they have a really clean line of business that they um, have in your monopoly on
0: an oligopoly means something relative to the power structure. So it's very hard to do an end run around those business interests. All right. So I have a very big note with a box around it in the middle of my piece of paper here. The three business models, what you're interested in right now, or the three business models that you feel are going to be the way that an entrepreneur can conquer the healthcare system. One of them is the laser shot into the system, as you said, which if you're going to disrupt the patient journey, for example. It has to be an order of magnitude better than what exists. You know, nobody's going to rip it all down and put it back together again for a 2% improvement or something. Number two is try to be the enterprise, actually be a full stack or self-sufficient. And then number three is to take advantage of a a network effect, as you said, and, and just kind of gather the force of numbers in that way. Do you have any examples of Who's doing a really good job with Category 1 there, the laser shot into the system? Is there any companies to admire or
1: classes to look out for? Let me try to give a specific example of each one. It does not need to all be data collective centric, of course, um, but let me not hesitate to, to think about the companies I know best. So the first example will be a data collective example. Um, and it's a company that only recently started to get a little more, bit more press and it's called Carius. So curious is deep genomics and process and a tremendous amount of machine learning after infectious disease. But specifically, so we get the vial, we spin out the human DNA, and we get to the cell-free DNA genomic uh, fingerprint, if you will, of whatever the pathogen might be. And it's a significant amount of process expertise and machine learning to now have identified uniquely in more than, I think, 1,400 you know specific pathogens, which heretofore, let's let's make sure we understand the empathetic environment where this is even already commercially viable. You have an eight-year-old immunocompromised oncology patient who's back in the hospital with a new infection. We're in the third day. And we still don't actually know what the infection is. So these infectious disease specialists and the institutions who handle this—I mean, these are these are heroes. These are the places you want your four-year-old if something. If you're in this situation, but if you look at the last 20, 30 years, what they have to do is they are the world's best, you know, heuristic graph in their brain of hypothesis based testing. Curious is a new approach because, because of what you can do with the genomics and the machine learning, it's hypothesis free. So we live in a future, a not very far future from now, where anytime someone comes in and we don't immediately know what it is that they have, you just run the curious test because that will give you the genomic answer. And so at first, this looks like, you know, a special situation house MD diagnostic inside the inpatient environment. But you can start to see similar to, you know, Tesla was not always just going to be this special, really small, fancy sports, you know, electric sports car oddity, like the curve that it goes down on is a future where every single time someone walks into a clinical environment, and let's, by the way, push that clinical environment as close to the patient as possible. Where it's both important and we don't know what they have. Why don't you just get to the genomic answer of the pathogen on the spot? My point here is that if you show up with another PCR test that just adds one more hypothesis, I don't know that that's a a profitable endeavor in the way that healthcare works and the way healthcare distribution works. We think carriers can be more than 50 times better than the way that we practiced infectious disease previously. So that's my 50x better into the system example. My be the enterprise, be a full stack example. You know, I cited Verda, and I would say, I think we will see more Verdas of the world. And I actually think we'll see some that are very AI and compute driven.
0: What does Verda do again?
1: Verda is the clinic who says, we have the holistic plan not to help manage your type 2 diabetes, but we can help reverse your type 2 diabetes. But you have to go through relatively significant patient engagement and behavioral changes. But as a result, you drastically reduce, I think more than 80%, the total number and frequency of your prescriptions. You start to lower healthcare costs to the system very quickly, to whomever is ultimately paying. But this is not a light flippant, hey, here's, you know, here's the sheet that goes home that we should be trying to hand to the doctors that you see. This is, no, this is a program and we're going to wrap this program around the patient. This is not a data collective investment. It's just one that I've admired because to get Verta right, you essentially have to become the full stat clinic for the type two diabetic versus trying to just sell a program or a digital tool into all the primary care physicians and endocrinologists who might be treating that patient. Got it. And on network effects, I mean, part of this point I'm making is that there's not enough, you know, so we've cited the four that I know of that have been successful. If I had to pick one more, and I do have just a little bit of personal equity in this uh, from several years ago, it's Carom. So I'm a big believer in bundles, Bundle payment math to me, it's kind of incontrovertible that in certain areas of care, bundles create a virtuous cycle of improved quality, improved competition for quality, while lowering costs at a reasonable way. And you do it iteration by iteration. And to me, bundles lead to this beautiful future. I'm suddenly finding myself being more political. I don't mean to throw daggers, but to me, it's it's disappointing that this administration wouldn't see bundles as a really logical way to do. Frankly, it's not a very liberal idea, the way that bundles help create good competition and better quality of which all of their families have to, like we're all healthcare patients at some point. I digress. Karam sets up this beautiful notion of a two-sided network where CMS in the last administration led the way by saying, hey, we're going to do bundles here and we're going to do bundles demonstrations there. Karam comes along and says, now that we are all using the same language of what a bundle is... We don't need to elegantly define that and teach all of you what a bundle is, and we don't need to use amazing math to recreate a bundle for each patient. They say, no, let's take the bundles that we already all know about, and let's create a marketplace so that large self-insured employers and government entities can be the buyers and healthcare providers, most of which, by the way, have ex- have excess capacity in any number of their disease state verticals or, or or wards let's create competition in healthcare at the episode level when we talk about the ridiculous variation in care we have for the same procedure for the same outcomes you start to realize boy it would be really healthy and it would make a ton of sense for a large self-insured employer that yeah if this patient is willing to have their copay way and maybe they drive 10 miles further maybe they don't maybe it's even closer But maybe they don't go to the place where they thought from a branded standpoint they were supposed to go, but instead were able to engage that patient around their, say, upcoming hip replacement and get them to a higher quality institution, a verifiably higher quality metric institution, but where the employer is getting a bundled price and the patient is getting a lower or free copay, that just feels like a win to everyone. And so what I love is how when that becomes true, all the things that happen in the second and third order of the world but to be clear carem's got to build a network first so right now they're getting tremendous progress i think they have something like 57 of the 58 california counties are now customers and so now most of the really best institutions in california are providers and we'll see how what happens and how that emanates out um, ultimately they'll have to break into the large self insured market and they'll have to they'll have to have providers willing to compete on quality which let's be honest for most of the past 40 years has actually not been the primary point of provider competition
0: Let me ask you this, Scott. Are there problems that you are seeing that you haven't made an investment in because you haven't found a company that is tackling said problems? You know, like what are the problems that you're looking to see solved that you're ready to invest in should a company come with a viable solution?
1: Oh, there's, you know, there's so many, and I want to be cognizant of your listeners. And so I'll just give a couple. Let me make a uh, an overriding comment first. Many of the right ideas are here. Now, I love to be delighted and see something new or a totally different spin. Even if I were to tell you we were 80% hypothesis driven, there's, there's not only good solutions we haven't thought of, there's ways of attacking problems or depth of problems that we may not, you know, maybe we haven't empathetically understood. There's one of the things that's about healthcare is none of us Can see the whole forest and have actually gone down every path through all the different nooks and crannies of the forest floor. So, my point is that there's a lot of great ideas on which companies were created between 2006 and 2014 that failed or sputtered out or evolved into a little incrementalism piece here or there. So, you know, a starting point is to just say, okay, what were some really great ideas and what were the dependencies or the challenges? And if some of those dependencies changed. You know, what I would say is actually quite a few have to go to a couple of specific examples or at least a couple of areas of theme without giving away too much of the store, some areas where we're really pushing hard. I think aging is still a critically underappreciated area for capital attraction. I mean that institutionally, my friend who leads innovation at Kendrick and you spend time at their institutions you know, there is an entrepreneur and a senior executive standing with one foot inside institutions where they know they're going to have to change. But all of their revenue models are around how the world worked yesterday. And yet, if you put yourself into how the future of value-based care should work and into the future of how, you know, the 58-year-old daughter of a mother who now is going to move more into a post-acute institutionalized environment versus being able to age in place, I think the majority of those patients, if you actually look at the majority of those purchasers, those consumers, uh, predominantly purchasing for their parents, um, not only are there demographic changes coming, not only is there a demographic wave coming, but I think there's an experiential gap where they're going to want more and more of an empathetic experience. And that is more than just the pretty picture on the laminated placard when they were suggested that this is the place they should go as they were sitting at a hard moment of making decisions at the point of discharge. So I think there's a lot to be done institutionally in aging. I think there's a lot to be done aging in place. And, you know, aging in place, there's a good example where, uh, gosh, I can remember listening to that GE Intel joint venture executive talking about how we've got to shift to the right. And you look at that economic curve of the, of the economics of the more you can shift that care to the right on his curve, increasingly to the home, uh, how the economics and the outcomes could be better. I would just look at the world and say that's mostly not what has happened. So there are only a couple of levers that really change the future of human health and the way that we're providing care. And without getting into the politics lever and without trying to redesign through central planning how risk and how insurance really should work in this country, I'll just say the lever that we believe in is the spirit of the entrepreneur. The data collective view is that the spirit of that entrepreneur is going to create new businesses in this next phase where there's not only data that's present, there is deep compute and informatics and AI and machine learning. We're not enamored with AI and machine learning. We're enamored with special teams that are on the forefront of both science and data technicalities and specificities built into an empathetic use case that makes some dent in the wall. One of the reasons to be an early stage investor is if you can take enough of those shots that you'll never apologize for the wedge they were trying to, to drive into the system, what you know is that some of them will earn the right to then grow, and some of those that will grow will actually start to change the system that we're experiencing. So I like aging. I like uh, engines of intelligence that are augmentative to how we're making decisions. So I'm really not spending much time worrying about replacing the clinician. I am worried about the heuristics on which the clinician functions. And I'm looking forward to a day of augmentative intelligence that is both a better QA system and a better augmentative place of contextualizing data and the known science of medicine so that the empathetic clinician can spend more time looking at the patient and less time, you know, clicking on the keyboard. Uh, We really like things that question what is the role of the payer. And there should either be a better payer or a replacement for it. And the last one I'll mention is, I think in the future, notions of how we come alongside the community, how we do primary care, how we do mental and behavioral health, uh, those will not be siloed separate areas. I think primary care will have a larger, much more dynamic presence. I think we're in the very early stages of how we're reinventing primary care. Um, we have a little bit of equity at Data Collective and in, in Forward, which is a special type of clinic I think there'll be many more that expand and specify the boundaries of primary care in a really dynamic way. That's always optimizing for the patient journey, bringing care and testing and validated but deep data closer to that patient and really supercharging anyone who comes alongside the patient, not just the doctor, right? So we live in a world where the pharmacist and the nurse practitioner and the home health aide and, you know, your brother-in-law appropriately have the right tools to help that patient. We're pretty excited about it.
0: Just to summarize quickly, we've got aging, we've got heuristics around the clinician. So for example, augmenting a clinician's ability to, to practice, we have the role of the payer, figuring out how to get the right payer involved in the right role and responsibility, and then supercharging the patient, i.e. better primary care, mental health, behavioral health. Awesome. Where can people find out more about Data Collective if they are interested in learning more?
1: DCVC.com. So we're Data Collective, but often referred to as DCVC. So DCVC.com. And I'm just Scott at DCVC.com.
0: It has been absolutely great to have you on the podcast today, Scott. Lots to think about.
1: Stacey, such a joy to be here and such a long journey we're all on. Thank you for your time